You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 143 is Eric Dover, currently promoting his work with the Licorice Quartet, which is a recording project he sings and plays guitar for, with my former guest here, Roger Joseph Manning Jr., as well as Tim Smith. After working with groups like The Extras and Love Bang in the 80s, he joined Roger in Jellyfish after their second album, belatedly replacing another guest of mine, Jason Faulkner, but then temporarily diverted to Slash a Snake Pit. You're currently listening to Beggars and Hangers On, a song that he sings and wrote the words for at the behest of Slash from Guns N' Roses. The album was It's Five O'Clock Somewhere from 1995. Today we're going to be talking about The Dream That Took Me Over from the Licorice Quartet's new Threesome Volume 2, then looking back to his solo project Sextus. The album is 2008's Stranger Than Fiction, and the song is Wishing You Well. Then we'll look further back to Imperial Drag, that post-Jellyfish, pre-Licorice Quartet band with Roger. The song is Boy or a Girl, a single from their one and only self-titled album, 1996. And then we'll close by listening to What Do You Want From Me, a song that... Eric wrote with Alice Cooper for the album The Eyes of Alice Cooper 2003. For more information, please see thelicorishequartet.com. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Make sure you're subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed. Or if you want to support the project, you can go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic and get an ad-free feed. So I'll play a little bit of Beggars and Hangers On by Slash's Snake Pit from It's Five O'Clock Somewhere, 1995, as I think that's the most famous thing your voice has been on. Do you want to tell us a little of that story of, I know you had done some bands even back to the 80s and had just joined Jellyfish as a touring member after their second album came out and then got this opportunity that kind of put you on the map. Say a little about that before we get into the, the songs we're going to spend the most time on today. Well, I came out to LA after Jellyfish had disbanded to work with Roger on what eventually became the Imperial Drag Record. And we were rehearsing at a place called Mates Rehearsal, which is a pretty famous rehearsal studio here in L.A. Guns N' Roses, you know, that's their main place. A lot of bands. Anyway, we were rehearsing with a drummer named Mark Danzeisen, and he said, hey, uh, you have a great voice. Why don't you go try out for Slash? He's looking for a, a singer. And with Roger's blessing... I'd only been out in L.A. for about, I don't know, a couple of months, and I was already very sick of sleeping on couches and that sort of thing. So I really was hungry to try to get somewhere where I could at least do what I love to do and maybe get paid a little bit for it. So I basically got in touch with Slash's guy, Adam Day, and arranged to meet at Slash's house. He played me a piece of music, and I wrote the lyrics to Beggars and Hangers On, you know, on the spot for the most part kind of flowed out. And I still have great memories of that song, really. I think it's held it well. I think there's a poignancy about it at that time of my life. I guess, had you done that sort of aggressive treble rock lead singing in any past incarnations? Well, I had become the default lead singer for the most part from the very beginning, from my very first bands. For whatever reason, nobody really wanted to do that. And I was happy to do it to be the singer and, of course, play guitar as well. So I've sang all kinds of uh, music, even from the time I was 14 to like 18 or 19. I mean, it could have been a Mother's Finest song or Def Leppard. I mean, it could have bridged the gap, you know, in several different ways. Hard rock and soul music and kind of Memphis rock is really my roots. So I always kind of defer back to that when it comes to any hard rock Sort of thing, yeah. Yeah, and you're sort of taking the Robert Plant role in that Beggars and Hangers On. Let's jump through that lens to look at the most recent thing. The Dream That Took Me Over was the song you'd picked from the recent EP, The Licorice Quartet, Threesome Volume 2. That is a song that I brought to the table to Tim and Roger for The Licorice Quartet. It was actually a fairly old idea. Loads and loads of songs, hours and hours of things that, frankly, they haven't been developed enough or completed in some way. And that was a song that really hadn't been completed. So I think I wrote that song in about 1999. So it's a really old song. But thankfully, Tim and Roger, we all were able to kind of pull it in a direction that I think is a lot more contemporary than the way that I had originally seen it. I kind of saw it originally as more of a techno trance song because I can write all kinds of different songs and I don't necessarily have myself in mind singing them sometimes. But this one worked out well. Climb with you away. 
I can hear their sort of contemporary elements. Of course, the production is lush in a way that you couldn't get in 1982 or something. But a lot of the elements here from the 80s version of Robert Plant that you start off with, of just being right on the treble edge of it there with a, a buttload of reverb and then this Roxy music groove and then very Roger. I had thought maybe that he had initiated this because it, it shares a lot in common with the one that I talked to him about from his you know synth 80s album. But that's just the way that a lot of this arrangement ended up being elaborated. But yeah, you know, so much of the Licorice Quartet from the first EP, I was expecting more of a 70s sort of thing, but this definitely has a lot of 80s elements in a good way, you know, between the, the guitar sounds. Can you say a little about sort of how this arrangement developed once you brought it to the table? When we got together originally, it was 2017, more or less, and we kind of fleshed the songs out together then in a kind of a basic way, at least, you know, what was going to do what, where. The arrangements are a lot more nebulous and mystifying as to how it eventually came out. It's sort of like developing a photograph, you know? You go in the studio and we would all try different things and just throw them in together and see what kind of textures we could get out of it. The sonic appeal of it to me is blending all those elements that we brought because people brought things I would have never thought of. The end result speaks for itself, I guess. Well, we're going <laughs> to keep trying to speak for it a little bit and we can pull out some sections that seem interesting to focus on. I'm actually trying to picture the bass groove and the bass part for Love is the Drug by Roxy because it's coming to mind. It was a definite strong between that choice of chorus guitar sound So was there a point at which the three of you were actually jamming as a live three piece, you know, against a drum machine or something where that bass part and the answering synth hit where those were all happening at the same time? Or was that too, you know, a, a layer at a time? I'd have to go back and listen to our garage tapes that we did. I think we kind of had a, a pulse for it early, though. But we did some sculpting on the arrangement and tried to get it in a groovy place. Like, you know, Love is the Drug is a great song. I would be lying. You know, if I said that we weren't influenced by Roxy music and, and all the, in Japan and all of those great 80 bands, I mean, those bass lines, especially, I mean, I really, that was the main thing that it's the thing that strikes me as like, oh, this is the song, that bass lick right away. But I'm guessing that that is not actually part of that. That's something that Tim jammed or, or did that come incorporated already? No, no, the pulse came along fairly easy at first. Like we kind of knew it was going to be in this direction. And then Tim, of course, went in and, and sculpted and did his thing as well, which is great. I mean, we all have a lot of creative freedom in this band to throw a lot of ideas out for each other because we're, we're very hungry to try to get those sections of music to complement each other and, and help tell the story. And this story that you came in, I, so the lyrics were already written. This was already completely lyrically what we're hearing pretty much? Uh, no, I would say at least when I brought the song to them, I had the gestalt of it already pretty nailed down. We wrote the bridge and then I completed the bridge lyrics as well much later. So uh, it did come around in stages. I was looking at these lyrics and feeling like that it would be very natural if you were already in a sort of 80s groove to write this kind of lyrics, as opposed to these being scratching your diary kind of thing. But tell me a little about how, I mean, are you approaching this kind of story from a more novelistic or confessional or channeling yourself when you were 17? Or what? what's the source, do you know, from the story here? Not every song is autobiographical. But in the course of writing songs for so long, you've always got a little song and it's in your head that you're working on if you're a musician. And it's always kind of the soundtrack to your life at the time. And in that case, that song was important. I was going through a kind of a strange time personally. That was the impetus for how the song came about. I wasn't even thinking about the 80s, but I did enjoy the 80s. You know, I love Level 42, that guy, you know. He can really slap a bass. Some come from an aesthetic or they'll come from an intellectual place or sometimes they come from a caveman place. Yeah, well, that's what I was trying to figure with this, whether it was the images that you're haunting my dreams, driving at night kind of thing, whether this was, I could see that either be something that arise out of 
you know, you've got music more or less already and you kind of have a melody and you're just putting words to it. So it's more the sound of the words than anything else. Or, you know, and part of what that can be is that if what the music is connoting is already, whether it's some historical period or it's just something in your influences, then you end up, you know, I, I think Licorice Quartet, some critics might look at some of the, uh, you know, I, I've seen things written about it, like, uh, you know, this recreating ELO, it's, you know, d- taking these past influences. I'm not saying, oh, this is derivative or, you know, it's merely a tribute band, but I can see if you were musically sort of in that mode, which when I talked to Roger, he definitely was like, take all your influences, take everything put it out there, mix it up, that you might do the same with lyrics. So it's not so much like I'm writing, whether it's autobiographical or just a poem that's coming from a personal place, but I'm channeling sorts of gestures that I've encountered in pop music that had infected you in that way. And in fact, construct your emotional makeup. Like it's a cyclical thing, like that you absorb these kinds of lyrics and then that's what comes back out, of course. Yeah, it's a language. It's a vocabulary in order to push the boundaries for yourself and the music that you make or, or listen to. I mean, you know, you're a little bit of a product of your influences, to be sure. I never think of it like that. I haven't written like that for years. I don't think of a band or a song that I want to copy, you know, and it's probably been to my detriment. I'm not as prolific as I'd like to be either, but it's just not something I think of. Sure, sure. I was just seeing more echoes in this than like Fadoodle, which I know you wrote the lyrics on too, which is clearly like, unless it's channeling the kind of goofy stuff that folks might do in psychedelic time at the end of the 60s or something, but it's just seemed a more natural, this is a piece of humor, you know, a way of expressing in the present moment in a uh, lighthearted way. Whereas this is, I hear the secrets that you keep when you're walking in your sleep, this kind of channeling something. Let me play one section here. I wanted to ask you about some of the musical choices here. That big guitar descending arpeggio thing, are you coming to the table with some of these guitar sounds worked up? Or is this even, even this is a collaborative thing in terms of was the delay added in post, that kind of thing? When we were completing the second EP, of course, COVID hit literally the day that we released the first EP. So we had to finish everything else at home for the second, including this song. So I did that guitar here at my little humble studio in Burbank. I think I had already recorded tracks for this two or three different times, different feels, different sounds. I mean, just sort of going through what would excite Tim and Roger and myself. This was basically my last try at it. I was definitely hearing a a few arpeggiated lines, but trying to kind of mix it in to something that had chordal and rhythmic value as well without being an overt funk riff or something, you know, which would be an inclination for some people to do. If you hear a lot of those guitar lines in that song, they're actually these kind of complex chords, but they're kind of played caveman too. So listen for them. Well, let's likewise play some of the bridge here. Yeah, so just that the main thing is this do 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 do, you know, almost like a bass line played on guitar. Was like that the first thing, or was it just we're going to do the chords with some rhythm and then we'll figure out how to fill it in? I did that at some point between the last time I tracked and maybe about a year ago or something. And I just loved the fact that it was this ascending, something that had this ascension about it in relation to what was going on underneath. Sometimes, you know, the lead voice is the instrument itself. I like to try to look at it like that as well. You know, if there's nothing to sing, then maybe a guitar or a a bass or whatever could jump in and and do something, you know. And this song had not established a palette where you'd be going, ba, 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 ba. Or, you know, I could hear in some of the other Licorice Quartet songs, like, let's do that as a vocal thing, since it's a, you know, it's a vocalish line. Why not? But this kind of had established itself that that's not the kind of stuff that's going on in here, I think. Unless you put vocoder over it or something. Well, I think there is some vocoder in that, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Toward the end? Towards the end. Yeah. Yes. Four minutes in. Full disco with faint vocoder lines, I wrote. So a cool effect to fill up. Ready, ready, ready. 
that's another thing. Do you decide before you put that kind of thing down? Like, oh, that's going to be vocoder. Or do you record it as vocals and say, we got to mess that up a little bit? (laughs) We thought, hey, try vocoder. Whatever we were like in the studio that day, I think we were still tracking together at that time. So I don't remember who mentioned vocoder, but Roger's like, yeah, I got vocoder. Let's do it. And of course, Tim and I and Frankie proceeded to be entertained by Roger for the next hour and a half playing a cameo and funk riffs from the 80s and singing them on the vocoder. So we were fine with it, but it happened to sound really good in the track too. And I think people would expect probably that we always do these grand vocal things because that's what we're known for. But it's nice every once in a while to kick back and do a something a bit more simple. And that filled the sound out without us really going into our vocal trip. Speaking of those little funky guitar riffs, So basically, the second time that same bridge thing comes over that you add a little with over the spoken vocal. Actually, is that Roger talking? That's Roger talking. And that's actually Tim on that guitar part. Tim played a lot of guitar on this as well. We were madly throwing ideas out there at a certain point. See how the jigsaw puzzle would fit together, basically. That's Tim on guitar and, and Roger. I don't actually know what he's saying. You know, sometimes I think about you late at night. You come running in and out of my dreams. And well, it, <laughs> it could be. It could be. I transcribed it. So yeah. yeah, I think not knowing, you know, is almost better, really. You know, you can sort of invent your own. Puzzle is right, because whenever you introduce that, what I was calling full disco, but just that 16th note echoing synth, that's going to go throughout. Like, well, how can you even fit anything over that apart from drums and big boom, 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 boom. Like, so the fact that Tim could work that extra guitar lick in there and make it work over talking and stuff like, okay, that's pretty accomplished bit of arrangement there. Well, we do enjoy getting in there and fleshing things out and uh, making the, the musical baklava, I guess, if you want to call it that. I mean, it can get quite dense in places. Let's look at a different period, a different group of people, a different arrangement. The uh, Wishing You Well, the tune that I picked by Sextus, your alter ego that you released two albums or an album and a half, I should say, in 2008, 2010. This one is from Stranger Than Fiction. So this Wishing You Well is sort of the first full song on there. Do you want to say a little about that before we hear it? That song is it's a bit of a sad one, but I remember we recorded an, an overture in the beginning which is this kind of musical overture, which I'm really proud of to this day. Song itself is more or less a song about losing and not knowing where to go, being lost. I think that's about it, really. Thank you. 
So this one is really stuck in my head. And I think part of it is the chord progression that just even starting out that we're going to go minor to major, back to minor to major, and it just kind of knocks you off balance. But just the fact that the vocals are just relentless. They just never stop. It's just where we think we're going to tumble over into a guitar solo or something. But no, it's just another line that it's just continually building tension with no relief. Yes, it was it was musical misery that I was subjecting myself <laughs> and others to. No, um, that's an interesting observation. I've never even uh, considered it. I wasn't really in the mood for a guitar solo either on that particular one you know we're not talking about we didn't start the fire it's not that kind of relentless like there's a there's a gap like there's pauses every line but it's just that it keeps going there's a little bit i guess toward the end of the song i'm wishing you well with tears in my eyes and then the instruments answer for one line worth Okay, so there's a a little of that. I'm saying goodbye. The sort of bass flies off. And that's where it sounds like two minutes in, where it sounds like it's going to hit a guitar solo. But we're right back there. No need to explain. I'm wishing you well, although I'll lose you forever. You had a full band built by this point, or is this you doing a lot of overdubbing maybe with a drummer? That is Jason Harrison Smith on drums. He plays with Albert Lee currently. Joe Carnes on bass. He plays with Fritz and the Tantrums. Wes Stiles played guitar. That harmonic stuff, or was that you? That was me, actually. But Wes Stiles became my guitar player in Sexus once we got out and started doing a few shows. That was the original core rhythm section guitar lineup. I got another guitar player named Chris DeClerc, a young Swiss guy, for uh, like the last two shows I did, I think, when my second EP came out. But the band itself is just whoever I would have around at the moment. I have Eric Scotus from Imperial Drag. He was He's playing on my material right now. But just whoever's around, there's L.A., it's full of musicians. And sometimes you just might want to give somebody a try. Hey, like that guy. It's a little fluid, but it will stabilize maybe eventually. I don't know. So am I right in thinking this started as an acoustic and vocal thing? Because the acoustic is at least there. It gets kind of drowned out as the song goes on, but that seems to be the core of it. it w- would you continue as this move through different live iterations? Would you pull out an acoustic for the stage version of this, or it just became something else? I'd probably at least start there. In fact, I did one show where I, that I've actually played it. We had acoustic guitar for it, so just like the recording. Sure. It seems like the biggest question, since the acoustic guitar is so rhythmic, is deciding how much of the band in the various places to have echo that because it's very easy to overdo it if the drummer is every time going pam 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 And it's pretty subtle here that like you don't hear the drums really, really follow that until pretty close to the end of the song. The bass does it a little more. Yeah. Can you say a little about insofar as you recall, was this just something that evolved naturally during rehearsals or was this recording kind of this is where you unveiled everything and you had to decide as you were recording it how much the various instruments are going to do? With people like Joe Carnes and Jason Harrison Smith, this is like cake for them. They already instinctually basically know where to go with it. There weren't really that many surprises as far as how the arrangement came out. I think a lot of what you're talking about too is dynamics. And dynamics are just so important with a song like this. So your instincts will kind of guide you on where not to be, which is just as important as where to be, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I should have pointed out that even in the first song, we had one of the later verses where everything goes away. and It's just, you know, you and a bunch of synths to let that dramatic moment of the band come back in. So we've got some kind of version of that here. So you're saying you did the lead guitar part, though. So this sounds like a rehearsed band is what I'm saying in terms of the quality of the dynamics and how you're answering each other. But you're saying this was more or less a session where you're just working with good enough people that they could on a couple run throughs. When you get really good players... And they already have this amazingly huge vocabulary of ways they can perform something. It's relatively easy, thankfully, because I wouldn't know what to tell anybody what to do uh, sometimes. Sometimes I get very confused about my own arrangements, mainly because I just don't want to have to dick with it. I would rather another musician come in and apply their flavor paste where they think it belongs as well. Let me play a little bit about 107. No. 
it's that harmonic then that ends with a non-harmonic note, that riff that's sort of going throughout and doing variations on that, that that's part of what adds this spiky feeling to the whole thing. And that was, again, just trying to be complimentary in the song rather than too contrapuntal. It's got a little of that contrapuntal thing, but it meshes nicely. So were the choice on where to harmonize yourself, was that just a during the last phase of things? Because I can see how that would also be, you know, it's easy to introduce a new voice, but then it's harder to take it away. <laughs> that you kind of want to just keep layering on stuff more and more as the song goes on. Part of that everlasting tension that you've going on in the song is that you don't give that satisfaction, that you introduce the background vocal for a couple lines and then it's gone again. And do you remember anything about that process? Uh, when I do stuff like that, it really boils down to I'll sing on it if it kind of gives me some kind of emotional impact. There's really no math involved to it, but I do try to make it somewhat in a way that doesn't interfere with the rest of the song going on. I mean, you can harmonize dyadically anything at any time, which is a beautiful <laughs> thing. I love it. But I just try to stick to the high points, highlights. The immediate thing is great. I love that nakedness about any great singer. But I also feel like it's like with Tim and Roger and I, when we all sing, we're really this other entity that's not quite all of us. So the multiple tracking of even my vocals Maybe that's another facet of me or something. Maybe it's my Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. I have no idea. But I think that my voice is powerful enough that when I attempt something like that, I can usually succeed. Sometimes I might fall flat, but it seemed to be the right thing. I need to stop for a minute to pay the bills here. I am eternally grateful for the ongoing support of Masterclass, where you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere at your own pace. They've got over 100 classes. All cinema quality, many by people that you've definitely heard of, maybe admire, like, say, Werner Herzog, Jane Goodall, Bob Woodward, Steve Martin, people I would love to talk to could never get on one of my shows in a million years, including many A-list musicians, Herbie Hancock, Itzhak Perlman, Usher, Carlos Santana, Alicia Keys, Questlove, etc., I have spent a lot of time with these music courses. They're wonderfully shot. They come with notes. You can get into discussions with other listeners about it. But I also like to just go to the site and see what they're highlighting for me today. Today, the site recommended a lesson from best-selling novelist Amy Tan on finding your own writing voice. It's from her Amy Tan Teaches Fiction, Memory, and Imagination course. And of course, this stuff is applicable to songwriting. A lot of what I'm talking to Eric here in this interview about is this long process of finding his voice through influences, through people that he's had to work with in various situations. And a lot of the lessons in Amy's course, like on the revision process, on writer's block, on dealing with rejection letters, these are all good things for musicians to hear about, to think about, to give other perspectives on what you do. Or maybe like me, you just fancy actually writing fiction and they're more directly applicable. It is just this sort of unexpected synergy that you can get out of an annual membership to Masterclass that you'll come for the music but end up sticking around for the cooking or fitness or entrepreneurship or any a number of other topics. There is really something for everyone in your family here. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. As a Nakedly Examined Music listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. So go to masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examined for 15% off masterclass. Hey, I also want to tell you about my Nebbia by Moen Showerhead, which provides water savings with more power than the shower you've already got. It is backed by some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, including Tim Cook. It's designed by former Tesla, NASA, Apple engineers. They spent years researching and developing a superior shower experience. The Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower is Nebbia's most advanced shower yet. It's got twice the coverage, half the water usage of standard showerheads. Nebbia's atomized dropless rinse shampoo and conditioner out of even the thickest hair. And you can install it all by yourself. Only takes about 15 minutes. Don't need a contractor. Don't need a plumber. If you can change a light bulb, you can install Nebbia by Moen. Nebbia balances functionality with a clean aesthetic to achieve a timeless design. It's available in four premium finishes to complement any bathroom. You know, I don't know about you, but the shower is one of my favorite places these days. You don't get to go places... But getting this new shower head, this adds a real level of experience. You want to spend time in the damn shower. It is a really just immersive experience, and you're actually saving water, even while it sprays 81% more powerful than the competition. 
It's got a handheld thing for your feet or wherever. It's got an adjustable head height, so it works for everybody in the family. So why don't you upgrade your bathroom? And while you're there, you can check out their shower curtain, bath mat. The Nebula by Moen Shower Spa starts at just $199. For negatively examined music listeners, we've got a deal for you. The first 100 people to use the code NEM at Nebia.com will get 15% off all Nebia products. Nebia really does deals like this, so it was a great deal to jump on. Go to Nebia.com slash NEM. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash NEM. Check out what they have to offer. The first 100 people to use the code NEM while checking out will save 15% off all Nebia products. Again, that's Nebia.com slash NEM. Use that code NEM to save 15%. Uh, well, let's get that third song out there. Going back even more in time, Boy or a Girl from Imperial Drag 1996. This was that band with Roger Joseph Manning that Jellyfish turned into, which I could see how the dream that took me over, like having just listened to a bunch of Jellyfish, it sounds like it's in the same sort of family, you know, as opposed to, uh, or maybe merging together that with the sort of rawness that you, the stuff you had just done with Slash since then. But boy or girl, it's still slow. It's a different groove. Do you want to say a little more about that period in this song before we hear it? Well, that's just a song of me youth, really. I think it was about the time where I really got into T-Rex and well, I still am madly. But I think I got the Tanks record or something, and I was just, let's try my hand at boogie rock. So <laughs> I had some friends that had a really nice turn-of-the-century house they were renting in Birmingham, Alabama. It's a place called Glen Iris Park. There was a piano in there, and I kind of wrote that song on a piano to start with. Because I got in my head that I, well, man, I've, I've got to have a tack piano. This is going to sound awesome. I mean, I bought like two or three boxes of thumbtacks and I'd already started putting tacks in the hammers, you know, and I got about two octaves and just gave up because it was driving me nuts. But it sounded amazing. I wanted that Beach Boys, the real tack piano. So you don't even hear that anymore. Hmm. So it was an experimental time too, trying to to learn about uh, recording. I mean, I've been recording since I've been 15 or so. But just trying to refine that because I wanted a lot of those sounds that I was hearing at the time on those T-Rex records and other assorted uh, 60s garage rock records that Roger and I were both pretty excited about at the time. That's why basically we got together with writing music for Imperial Drag because we were into things like Steppenwolf records and Deep Purple and like just groovy garage stuff. The lyrics on that particular song was just I had uh, grown up and going to a bunch of different schools because my parents moved around a bit with my dad's job. So I was always the kid trying to fit in. It was kind of hard. My high school years were easy, but as a kid, I could get bullied. And I was a little bit androgynous, I guess, looking to some people, you know. So eventually, after all the teasing and bullying and fights and whatever that we got involved with in middle school, I'd learned to give it back to the bullies a bit. So that, that song really is kind of about anti-bullying because I was confident enough in who I was to just try to make anyone, well, you take your guess as to who I am, you know, like that was my uh, way of just saying, I don't really give a shit what you think. That's on a subconscious level, on the level of what the song sounds like to a listener. It could mean a lot of different things, but that was just my way of expressing that because eventually I could run people off and just like flirt with them and just go nuts because it was the 90s. We would do shit like that. You know, we'd do anything to get a rise or whatever, or the 80s. Well, nobody did that in the 80s. What am I talking about? But (laughs) maybe it was a coping mechanism. I don't know. I still think about that song. It's a fun number about just androgyny and just free form, you know, free spirit.
you get to have the T-Rex thing so very rooted in the 70s, but also by having the big fuzz guitar, like this is your biggest sort of radio hit in the jellyfish family. <laughs> How did this do? It seems like it should have done well at the time. Uh, it did okay for a few weeks. I think it was, uh, it could have probably been a bit peppier. We wanted to keep it groovy. And I think it is still a groovy song. It's just kind of a deep groove. And I also think maybe the lyrics weren't everybody's cup of tea, but I was always very, very influenced by the Kinks and the song Lola, as most people that appreciate rock music are. And I always loved the idea of that song, how everything develops, you know, because it's a story. And at the end, it's like, oh, my gosh, it's a guy. You know, Lola is, you know, (laughs) those things thrilled me as a kid. Or um, All the Young Girls of Alice by Elton John, or if you want to get into that territory. But yeah, it got to number 39, I think, on the U.S. charts. A couple of weeks, then uh, I think Mariah Carey bumped us off. I don't know. Well, the chorus itself is almost like a classic Stones tune. So is that the tack piano that's playing during that? Well, eventually Roger put some Wurlitzer and stuff on it. Okay. Sadly, there's no real tack piano on it. That was just from my original demo of the song. I'm just projecting it as if the Stones were doing it, then there would be the tank, 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 you know, as the... The Nicky Hopkins kind of stuff, which actually... Yes. I was probably trying to be Nicky Hopkins at that time because uh, I'm a massive Stones head and always have been so that that kind of uh, syncopated keyboard bit in the chorus that to me like oh i think nicky Hopkins would have written that well and you've got the little flow and eddie kind of thing like from the t-rex then ah <laughs> that particular master flow and eddie fans maybe we should get them on the next licorice quartet record ah <laughs> They probably still do session. I, I think I've seen their names on Harmony stuff within the last decade. I don't. I don't know if, what they're still doing now. I, I love uh, T Rex's Mambo Son. They're fantastic on on that one. I mean, they're fantastic on all of his stuff, but I really love their vocals on Mambo Son. There's a thing that I've seen on all these songs, like on verse two here. Throwing extra syllables to force yourself like, oh, this is still the second line of the verse. You would think you would just repeat the same rhythm twice, which you do in some other circumstances. But let's throw some extra syllables. So now we're already in the the next line already to kind of force some readjustment. Well, singing over the bar or playing over the bar is a wonderful thing to employ, I think, at times. In fact, uh, Slim Jim Phantom from the Stray Cats and I were really good friends and we talk about music often and We both concur that having that ability to think over the confines of the tempo can oftentimes lead to very cool, interesting results. So in the dream that took me over, but I've got to let you know how I feel. So we're already on the one of the chorus with the last line of the pre-chorus or whatever, whatever you were calling that section. So that then you are the dream that took me over ends up being sort of a, a response that you've kind of established with an instrumental and that one word feel. Now we're in the groove, and now I'm going to kind of jump in on it as after the ship has already sailed a little bit. I never have noticed that I do that, but you're right. You're trying to just pulse it out in a way that isn't too square. You know, like, I don't like square and, and symmetrical. I like, like all the geometric patterns that go into the kaleidoscope to happen, if that makes any sense, you know, so confines of all sorts of things in music most people i would guess probably compose music with the computer and and you have a metronome and you can play on time i don't know if that's always the way to do it though i know there's more than one way to make a chicken salad sandwich what's up tiger lily remember that movie (laughs) yeah as far as the sort of the puzzle piecing here so whereas on Wishing you well, it sounds like there is a band. Everybody is playing more or less continuously. Maybe people will back off, will come in. More typical of the stuff that you've done with Roger, there seems to be an openness of, let's just insert a thing here. It's not like you're having to picture, I don't know, a guitarist I used to play with was advising me on arrangements and like, you got to just think about 
as if you're seeing the band live. And like, I don't like that. I like a kitchen sink to run in from the side and do a little dance and run away. Like <laughs> a little more gimmicky. So I'm hearing that in Boy or Girl, even in the treatment of guitar that you'll have just like, let's have the big... It's there, it's gone. Maybe it comes back. It's harder to keep track of what the cast of characters is, I guess. You know, music is kind of subjective that way. I understand that I like to hear a band play. I like to hear a Stones record. You can hear Keith over here and you can hear everyone or a Beatles record. But there's a lot to be said for the multi-track miracle that we get to use every day, layering sounds and kind of making new sounds out of the whole thing, too. That's always been important to me because playing rock music, you kind of have to be very keen on these things, the tones and your sound and depending on the music, it has to rock. So, Well, so to apply that to the, the harmony vocal thing again, in a song like Wishing You Well, you're singing the harmonies yourself on that, right? Against yourself? Yeah. And I like that because your voice sounds good in those different ranges, but it's also with that sort of raw approach if you want to establish a band and, you know, I'm picturing a band on stage and I all the personalities of everybody kind of are coming through, then that's exactly the kind of harmony that in, I think, in Jellyfish, Jellyfish was sort of floated a, a line on this in terms of, am I hearing that that's Roger doing backing vocals or does it just sound like the Jellyfish sound? And I think on Licorice Quartet, often you guys are doing like, you know, this ELO, like you were referring to it as a fourth thing, like, you know, the, the combination of your voices is its own majestic thing. But, you know, I could also see like, okay, we're selling this as our three personalities. And so we're going to do it more like the band. We're going to do it more like the harmony that you did against yourself in Wishing You Well, where you could hear like when you hear the Beatles harmonies, I like that they would write it on the record, right? Oh, this is Paul with Paul and John in the background so that you can like, oh, okay. The one I'm hearing on top, that's Paul against, you know. Oh, yeah. Something endearing about that kind of more egotistical approach to harmonies where you can tell who's singing what as opposed to the we're combining everybody's voices in an interesting blend that almost sounds like not like a human anymore. Well, I think that in terms of Tim and Roger and I, Roger is good at ringleading and pulling these arrangements together, but he also... We all have the advantage of intimately knowing each other's voice and what it excels at and what it might not excel at. I kind of defer to those guys quite a bit in that regard because there are some songs in which I would hear Tim singing them or Roger, you know, or me or whatever. But we all kind of decide that once we get out of the writing stage, like we'll write songs together at first, but we don't know who necessarily is going to sing them. Oftentimes we might suggest that a little bit later. Well, I can usually tell if it's got some of the grit, then that's definitely you. <laughs> like, if it's got a lot of grit and it's high and it's pushing and it sounds like you in Slash a Snake Pit, then like I could identify that. But clearly you can also do the perfect little needle shaped pure voice as well, which is in that case, like, I'm not sure if that's you or if that's Tim or, you know, I blends a little more clearly. It's the softer side of Eric Dover. I think that's <laughs> what you're hearing. And again, that has to do with Roger and Tim. We all kind of coach each other. When we're doing a lot of these vocals, when we were singing together or apart, we have that instant feedback together. So we can be like, oh, hey, Eric, cut your uh, grit down a little bit. Go a little cleaner here. Let's do the timing thing here. And like we make all those notes. But we have to because it gets dense and involved. So, Well, let's wrap up here by talking about there's a lot of years in between these things. You had this burst of activity in the 90s on the tail end of Jellyfish and with Slash, which was only for the one album, right? Right. Was it because you were rejoining Roger that that ended or was there other things involved? No, it was because Roger and I already had a deal on Sony, mm. on work group, basically. I went into the Slash situation explaining that after a little tour of promotion or whatever, I'm going to have to bail for a while. So I kind of just decided that Imperial Drag was what I was going to have to do. And the rest is, as they say, history. So I know you're doing a lot of promotion with the Ligris Quartet thing. Is your main band still Sextus? Is that still an active, assuming that you can actually be in the same room with people eventually? Are you still working on material for that? Or is that dead for the moment? No, I have six new songs that I'm currently in the process of trying to finish. But I wish, like I said, that I could be more prolific. But I don't know. I I'm just one of those guys. 
So it could sit there for a few weeks until I get inspired to do something that resembles any kind of quality work. They're about 75% finished, maybe. I don't know. I degrade it. So like this full album, Stranger Than Fiction 2008, which was your first kind of real solo album, right? Right. How many years? Was that a decade of stuff that was building up to that? Or was that all kind of in the year before that you wrote most of the songs? I wrote most of those songs within a span of about three years. Okay. It was after Imperial Dragon. I didn't quite know what to do, but I knew I wanted to continue making music. So I got busy writing then. And and actually, ever since then, I haven't really stopped writing. I've been writing the entire time. That's why I have just, you know, hours and hours and hours of, of music. People haven't heard, you know, some of it's complete, more complete than others. So I'm just going to try to keep getting it out there. I don't want it to be embarrassing. So make sure everything, all my P's and Q's are correct, hopefully. So are there like an album worth of unreleased stuff from, you know, the year 2000 kind of, you know, because there's a long time between that 96 and 2008. Is that just the pace at which you were, but you said you've been writing continuously that whole time? Yeah, I have. I just trying to decide what songs I'm going to cut. And I write different kinds of music. I write instrumental music as well. Some electronic music, even. I think I am a little lazy or timid. I can't really tell. Again, it goes back to the whole developing a photograph analogy. I mean, it it really is like that. You could be right there and it's like, well, I can see a picture, but I can't quite see it yet. You know, and you put it in the solution for a little while and then it starts coming out a little bit more work. So, well, there's just also the motivation of other people around in terms of finishing things. Sextus, did that become like a whole band where you felt supported? by the other members wanting to do things on a regular basis? Or was that kind of, that's your solo project and you're pushing it forward at every step. And if you don't feel completely engaged, then it's just not going to happen. I had uh, supportive players. I'm sure that we would have liked to have seen more happen. I've been kind of living my life too in the midst of all this from Jellyfish onward. And uh, so some things have went on, all basically good, but a few little patches and stories. I mean, I'm I'm happy. I'm in a happy place right now in my life, which is wonderful. Sure. And not touring continuously for 20 years. It sounds like that would have been a more painful. There was the start of the whole (laughs) problem right there. I enjoyed the road and have enjoyed my time on the road. I still tour. I mean, I went to uh, UK and Belgium about, what, a year ago or something and toured with with some friends of mine that I have a band with that we do greatest hits and whatever. But any more than about two or three weeks, and I'm, you know, missing the cats. So, well, let's wrap this up then by introducing. So, one of these things in that period in between was you were touring and then on albums by Alice Cooper and by The Eyes of Alice Cooper, 2003. What you co wrote most of the songs on that album, we were going to hear you pick What Do You Want From Me from that album. Do you want to say a little about that? I just think it says a lot about your versatility, you know, that you were the hired vocalist for Slash, and here you're the hired guitarist slash harmony singer. Is that what your role was in Alice Cooper's band there? That's what it was. Guitar and uh, originally it was for the guitar gig, but then it came time to do something else and he'd expressed interest in me getting in and working with him, which I was thrilled about because I've always been a massive fan. He goes, yeah, we'll get together and write then. So we got together and I went over to his house and he had a spiral bound notebook of lyrics, stuff that he'd kind of amassed. And uh, that was what do you want for me was one of the lyrics. So at the time I had a four track tape machine and I sat there cross-legged in one of his living rooms and kind of went, came about fairly quickly. There's a lot of teenage angst, I guess, built into that number. The song's about not being able to make somebody happy, which is kind of a universal theme for some people. It's happy how it came out. I can be your Robert Plant. I can be your Jimmy Page. Whatever whatever you need. (laughs) Well, I'm just trying to be Eric Dover and, you know, not get trampled on. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much for doing this. Any other things to plug or promote or that you're working on before we wrap up here? No, um, just uh, if you could, anyone that's interested, go visit thelicorishequartet.com. That's L-I-C-K-E-R-I-S-H, quartet. And check out the site. We have uh, a lot of different merchandise. We have experiences. We're willing to play and or sing on your recordings. We've actually done quite a bit of that since we began. And I want to thank anyone that's 
express love and support for the project. We're really overjoyed at how kind people have been. So thank you. Thanks so much to Eric. That was fun getting a second point of insight into that very cool trio, the Licorice Quartet. You can hear that interview with Roger Joseph Manning Jr. on episode 128. And maybe after a decent interval, I'll try to get Tim Smith, the third songwriter from that, because that is a wonderful collaboration. And I need to recommend the Sextus material. If you go to sextus.bandcamp.com, you will find the full album 2008's Stranger Than Fiction and the EP 2010's Devil Angel. Some really good stuff, and that Wishing You Well song that we talked about, man, I can't get that out of my head. That is really, really good. Next episode, I'm interviewing Dennis Davison from the Jigsaw Scene. I have also very recently talked to Jay Gonzalez, who's the keyboardist for Drive-By Truckers, but makes very nice solo records that sound a lot like the Licorice Quartet in terms of their fun 70s influences. And then I just talked to guitarist Nels Klein, best known for his work playing leads for Wilco in the last decade or so. But he is a serious jazz guy going back to the 80s. 
You can get all this stuff at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Now, if you're listening to this through the Partially Examined Live feed, you're not going to get all the episodes. Please subscribe directly to Nakedly Examined Music through your desired podcast app, and you will get everything on time, promptly. Or if you really want to support the project, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. You can support the project even with the smallest donation. They'll set you up with an ad-free feed. And finally, another thing you can do to help at no cost to you, if you go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, look in the upper right corner of the screen, there is a button to rate and review the podcast, which will help to tell people that this is a thing worth listening to. Man, this pandemic is dragging on, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. You will be out seeing shows, playing shows, interacting with others in the way you're used to before you know it. Let's just hold on, immerse yourself in some really cool music to help pass the time. Thanks for doing it here. In whatever form, just keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark Vincent Meyer signing off.